It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You know, when it comes to dealing with the great societal problems of our times, the New York Times is on it. Listen to this headline today. I went braless during lockdown. What do I do now? And it's a whole story about what's the best kind of bra to wear. This stuff is kind of beyond my expertise. But I, was try- I, I saw the story this morning and I was trying to find this. I did a Google search and I found a whole bunch of similar stories, uh, you know, about women who felt liberated and now they've got to go back to work, whatever. Uh, just want you to know uh, nothing escapes me. I've got it all covered here. You know, yesterday morning I had to make a decision on Media Buzz. Hope you had a chance to see the program. And by the way, hope you had a good weekend, especially with the much nicer weather pretty summertime weather here. It was in the 80s here in the Washington metropolitan area. Um, and so uh, what happened was that the, the previous night, Saturday night, uh, stories started to break about corrections. Corrections by the New York Times, the Washington Post, and NBC News on the Rudy Giuliani story. And uh, I was going to deal with, you know, the, the search warrants, Giuliani's Manhattan uh, office and his home. You know, it was in our second block. And I said, this is just happening. These three major news organizations are saying, "Uh, oops, sorry, we got it wrong. Never mind. Correction. Okay. And I just thought, okay, that has to go at the top of the show because it is just uh, the latest in a whole long series of examples of major media outlets. I mean, we're talking here about major newspapers, major networks that have good reputations, but... In many cases, especially on the Russia, Russia, Russia investigation, kind of lost their way. Again, I, I'm never going to say that it would, the whole thing was a complete hoax, to quote a former president, or that, you know, there was a special prosecutor's investigation and all of that. But they just kept going too far and having to retract. I'm not just talking about these three. I'm talking about a whole lot of places, some of the opinion hosts on cable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so here we have... Uh, a classic situation. And that's why, you know, we devoted a few minutes to this at the top. So we have the story. Like, it's a big story. You know, some of the feedback I got on Twitter was, well, you know, this doesn't change the fact that Rudy Giannani is under investigation and the feds, you know, rated... Of course it doesn't. It's a serious matter. He is a former U.S. attorney in Manhattan. That's when I first covered Rudy Rudy Giuliani. I actually met him first when he was the associate attorney general in the Reagan administration. So he, you know, he would do perp walks with uh, Wall Street executives. He went after the mob. He was a great crime fighter. He knows all about search warrants. So for the Ukraine investigation, which was at the center of the first Trump impeachment, which many of you have already probably forgotten because you, you know, so much more attention was given to the second Trump impeachment because of the riot at the Capitol back on January 6th. Um, the, and some of it was hard to follow, you know, but, you know, the bottom line was clear. Rudy Giuliani spent a lot of time, and he was on TV a lot, talking about Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, what was going on in Ukraine, dealing with Ukrainian figures, a couple of whom have since been charged in unrelated crimes, and trying to discredit the candidate who was then angling to, and later did win the nomination to, run against uh, his client, Donald Trump. And of course, Rudy being Rudy, you know, when some of these appearances, he would completely and totally go off. He, he, he's very much like his client in that he really likes to sick it to the press. I've been on the receiving end of that sometimes. You know, I've had a good, long relationship with him, many, many, many interviews. But, you know, when it comes to anything involving Trump or Russia or Ukraine, um, you know, he's like a man possessed. So, it was already a big story. In other words, 
the fact that the the search warrant was executed, this is something that you know federal prosecutors do not do unless they can convince a federal judge that there is a likelihood that the person they are targeting has committed a crime and that the search will turn up you know, important evidence that they can't get any other way. So when Rudy was going off about this is illegal and it's unconstitutional, you know, it, it seemed to me like a guy who knows the ropes on these sort of things. I mean, his argument was he offered to give this stuff to the feds. It was, there was no need for seven FBI agents to show up at his home at six in the morning. But then along comes first the Washington Post. And the Washington Post reports that back in 2019, when he was the Trump lawyer, when all this stuff was going on, when he was having these dealings with Ukraine, and when he was for a time talking to certain figures in Ukraine about consulting contracts that would have been worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Rudy himself acknowledges that, said he ultimately decided not to do it because it would have looked bad because of Trump being his client and all of that. Washington Post reports, based on unnamed sources, that the FBI in 2019 gave Rudy a dire warning, said that he was the target or among the targets of a Russian disinformation campaign aimed at Joe Biden. In other words, that according to this account, Moscow, Putin, the Russian you know, intelligence service was trying to get Giuliani to say things about candidate Joe Biden that were not true in an effort to discredit him. I mean, obviously, this harkens back to 2016 and, and Russian interference in that election. And then shortly afterwards, the New York Times, New York Times has confirmed this allegation based on unnamed sources. And then NBC News went on the air. NBC has confirmed the Washington Post story and so forth. And, you know, it tends to work like that because many of these organizations, particularly in a highly specialized area like Russia, rely on the same sources. Or if they get beat on a story, and I've been in this position a million times, a competitor has a story. You have to call justice or FBI or any federal agency, really, trying to get any sources you have on the phone. Maybe it's a press person. or Just you know, tell me if I'm going wrong. If I publish the information that was in the Times, that was in the Wall Street Journal, you know, am I on solid ground? And sometimes in your second or third, the source will say, no, that story is accurate. Or you're okay going with it. Or, you know, you're on safe ground. Or they will wave you off saying, I would be careful about that one if I was you. This is how a lot of this stuff happens. So here you have two of the premier newspapers and one of the major networks saying that this was true. Giuliani said it wasn't true, didn't matter. The story just ricocheted across the media landscape. So you know how it works. Uh, all these websites pick it up. Um, even if you have a story and you leave with Rudy Giuliani is denying an allegation in the Washington Post slash New York Times slash NBC, it gets out there. And it takes a story that was already not a great story for Giuliani. You know, he's got his own lawyer and he's trying to convince the feds that whatever he did, whether it had to do with the trying to persuade President Trump, as he ultimately did, or at least helped persuade, to get rid of the ambassador, Marie Ivanovich, to uh, Kiev, or uh, that he was lobbying on behalf of the Ukrainian regime, uh, but not registered as a lobbyist. That's a serious crime. It's not just a technicality. Anyway, so late Saturday, Washington Post runs a correction, says, you know, this allegation we told you about on a source is not true. We're retracting it. The New York Times stealth edited its piece, I talked about this on the air, took out the false accusation, but without any editor's note or saying anything about it. But then after the Post did the uh, correction, the Times said, well, we better do one. And then the Times did a correction as well. The Times said, um, Times or NBC, forgive me, said, well, one source said that this happened, 
But another source said the FBI was going to, preparing to give Giuliani a briefing, but it never happened. Well, if you only have one source, and that source doesn't, can't prove that this happened, no email, no documents, just, you know, source familiar with the matter, uh, speaking on condition of anonymity, that can be a pretty thin situation. And then NBC jumping on as well. So all three news organizations then saying, here's a correction. It's not true. What we reported wasn't true. We said it was true, but it's not true. This is a major blunder, an incredible stain on their reputations. And don't think this went unnoticed by the former mayor of New York City. Uh, He goes on Twitter. He says the stories are defamatory. He asked that all three news organizations apologize because none of this is, there was no like, we regret the error. We're sorry, Mr. Giuliani. It was all, you know, okay, we said it. It's not true. Here's the correction. And he called on the Times and the Post to reveal their sources. Now, the chance of that happening is basically nil. But there is, you know, I did this investigative reporting for many, many years. There is an understanding when you deal with unnamed sources who are are giving you classified information, sensitive information, potentially libelous information, that if they mislead you, you can go public. You can, one pejorative way of putting it is you can burn them. You can say, this was the source who gave me this stuff. On rare occasions, it has happened. But in order for that to happen, you have to conclude that the sources lied to you. The sources were not just wrong, but they deliberately misled you for whatever their own reasons, political or otherwise, whatever their own agenda was. And I think that makes sense because there's a compact between reporter and source. You're telling me this. I'm protecting you but I'm taking your word for it, even if there are documents, maybe you have to vouch for the documents, that you're telling me the truth. If it turns out you're not telling me the truth, then the deal is off. The protection that I promised you is no longer valid. I'm not certainly predicting we're going to see that here. And, you know, there's such a long history here about mistakes involving Trump and Russia. In fact, I had Hogan Gidley, the former White House Deputy Press Secretary, and Trump campaign spokesman on the show yesterday, and I asked him about this, you know, knowing full well he would tee off. And he said, you know, this kind of false reporting always goes against Republicans. And I could give you the long list of people, uh, organizations that have reported things that turned out to be true when it came to Trump or Rudy, etc. And he says, and later, Gidley says, later they issue corrections that no one sees. And that's the remarkable thing about this. Tune on the tele- turn on the television this morning. They're still talking about Rudy and Ukraine. And, you know, it doesn't invalidate the investigation. He, he hasn't been charged. He's entitled to presumption of innocence. He still could be charged. But you would think if you're going to do that story yesterday or today, you would play up the facts, especially if you're MSNBC, part of NBC News, that your own organization made a major mistake a major mistake on this story. And if it got more than a sentence or two, I missed it. I'm not even sure it did get a sentence or two because it doesn't fit the narrative. You know, the press doesn't like Rudy. Rudy doesn't like the press. The press is convinced he's in deep trouble. You know, remember all of the times when, oh, and the Mueller report comes out and we're going to find out and Don Jr. in the meeting when the Mueller report comes out and the Mueller report had damaging stuff. I'm not saying it was an exoneration, as Donald Trump likes to say, but it didn't find, or at least... Mueller didn't feel he could find evidence of criminal activity. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Let me move on to some other stuff here. I want to spend a lot of time on the pandemic because something uh, remarkable and rather depressing has happened. You know, every day, I look, there's a little box 
uh, I think it's in either the Times or the Post. It says how many people have been vaccinated in America. And it's now up to 144 million have gotten at least one dose. So that's about 55% of the adult population have gotten at least one dose. And, you know, you need two doses if it's Pfizer or Moderna of the vaccine. And maybe 40 some percent, 40 plus percent are fully vaccinated. And so it's been this race between, you know, states and cities are opening up. Certainly the number of cases is going down. The number of deaths is going down. That's all good news. But the virus is still out there. And then I look at the numbers in some days, it's still killing eight or 900 Americans a day in some places worse than others. And so it's been sort of this race to get to this mythical status called herd immunity. So New York Times is a big, pretty definitive story today, basically saying that ain't happening. We're not going to reach herd immunity. And a lot of it, not all of it, though, and this is what's interesting, has to do with the vaccine hesitant. If more people were getting the vaccine, we probably would reach a point where enough people were fully inoculated and or have already had COVID-19 that the, the virus wouldn't disappear, but it would be at a pretty low level. Um, and so the Times says that uh, federal and you know, government and medical experts are coming to the conclusion that rather than going away, the virus will most likely become a manageable threat that will continue to circulate in the United States for years to come, still causing hospitalizations and deaths, but in much smaller numbers. Well, I'm glad it will become manageable in much smaller numbers, but that's a far cry from basically it being vanquished. How much smaller is uncertain depends in part on how much of the nation and the world becomes vaccinated and how the coronavirus evolves. So this is a new challenge for public health authorities um, because the notion that, okay, if once this gets out, they're not going to reach herd immunity, it, it's another why bother for people who haven't yet been vaccinated. That's the Times' phrase. Anthony Fauci, Biden administration's top COVID advisor, uh, expects there to be a shift in experts' thinking. He said people were getting confused and thinking you're never going to get the infections down until you reach this mystical level of herd immunity, whatever that number is. That's why we stopped using herd immunity in the classic sense. I'm saying forget that for a second. You vaccinate enough people, the infections are going to go down. So originally, Fauci said herd immunity was about 60%, maybe as high as 70% of the population getting vaccinated. And then he changed it to 70 or 80%. A lot of people said, look, Fauci's moving the goalpost. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He'll never be satisfied until it's 100%. But it turns out it's not Fauci's fault because it wasn't that he moved the goalpost. It was the fact that the variants of the virus continued to spread and that made it harder and it required a greater proportion of the population to be vaccinated and vaccination levels started to go down. As a result, uh, now experts expect the herd immunity level to be at least 80%. And as I say, the Times conclusion, you know, reflecting medical consensus, that is not going to happen. So, and then the further problem is you've got whole areas of the country now where like it's pretty well under control and restaurants are reopening, schools are reopening and businesses are reopening. And that's a great thing. I'm not against that. I don't think things should stay locked down forever. But you do have states where within that state, there are these hot spots. Many times it's in rural communities, but you know, given the history of virus, it's not going to stay that way. If it's big in one part of Michigan, eventually, because of travel and other things, it's going to spread to other parts. So we're kind of at a tipping point. Now, Politico has a different version of a similar story, focusing on what is the Biden administration going to do about this. 
As more cities and counties with robust COVID vaccination rates start to experience stirrings of pre-pandemic life, and God knows we all want that, some communities just a short drive away are seeing the opposite. Paltry demand for shots accompanied by new hotspots of the disease. And the Biden administration is redoubling its effort to reach the stragglers. Uh, the contrast within states like Colorado, Oregon, and Michigan spotlights the emerging divide. So the administration now, you know, the answer for a long time was mass vaccination sites. You go to the convention center, you go to the big outdoor thing, the National Guard is there, you sit in your car, you get shots. Well, that's great for the people who wanted to get shots. But now most of the people who really wanted to get this vaccine have gotten this vaccine. And that is the problem. Senior administration official telling Politico, the ground game really matters now. We don't have to do these major FEMA sites. I don't understand why that couldn't be on the record. So the idea that it's just going to be, you know, hey, if you build it, they will come. Well, they ain't coming. They ain't coming because a lot of people, especially in rural communities and among many younger people, are hesitant or unwilling to make arrangements to get a shot. And by the way, this is the legacy of the completely screwed up effort in so many states where even if you were you were just desperate to get these vaccines, and I'm not talking here about the lack of availability, I'm talking about how difficult it was to go online, to navigate all these different sites, you put in your name, you pre-register, and uh, you know whether it's a supermarket or a drugstore, I mean, they ran good programs, but the states screwed it up. It made it so difficult. And that's the legacy now. So if you're kind of on the fence, well, you know, a lot of people are saying, like, I might get around to it. I'm not totally saying I won't get it. There's no one, you know, there may be one-stop shopping. Most people aren't even aware of it. And then you want to go go and wait and make an appointment and have to go make an appointment a month later. So uh, the sudden and dramatic decline caught both state and federal officials off guard, says Politico. The numbers have declined 25% over the past Two weeks, fewer than 1.1 million Americans are now receiving a first dose each day. It had been like three and a half million. That is a plunge. And it really shows you now that the doses are finally available, we could finally beat this thing. A lot of people just aren't interested or they have certain reluctance. And so the Biden people are trying to figure out what do we do about that? How do we get the virus to people who are reluctant? A guy at Johns Hopkins uh, saying in those communities where the uptake is less, it will take a lot longer for the epidemic to end. There'll be more sickness, more death in those communities. So that brings me to why are people not getting it who are eligible, who could not only protect themselves, but also protect their family, their friends, their colleagues if they're in a work setting. So here's a piece by Derek Thompson in The Atlantic. He actually went out and interviewed about a dozen people to try to find out to understand their thinking. Now, he's a big proponent of everybody should get vaccinated. In fact, he says, uh, I am so motivated that I canceled vacations, canceled my wedding, avoided indoor dining, and mostly stayed home for 15 months. All that sucked. I am rooting for the vaccines to work. But the no-vaxxers I spoke with, and he's got a lot of people on the record, just don't care. They've traveled, eaten in restaurants, gathered with friends inside, gotten COVID-19 or not gotten COVID-19, survived, and decided it was no big deal. What's more... They've survived while flouting the advice of the CDC, the WHO, Anthony Fauci, Democratic lawmakers and liberals whom they don't trust to give them straight answers or anything virus related. Um, they're motivated to distrust public health authorities who they've decided are a bunch of phony neurotics. This is based on the interviews. And they're motivated to see the vaccines as a risky pharmaceutical experiment rather than as a clear breakthrough that might restore normal life. 
This is the Novaxer story in a nutshell. I trust my own cells more than I trust pharmaceutical goop. I trust my own mind more than I trust liberal elites, because it's no secret that the greatest reluctance is among some many conservatives and Republicans. Uh, just to give you the flavor, uh, a 24-year-old in Brooklyn says, I cannot imagine that any amount of hectoring or shaming or proclamations from the public health or Democratic committees will make much difference for this group. I've lost all faith in the media and public health officials. It might sound crazy, but I'd rather go to Twitter and check out a few people I trust than take guidance from the CDC or WHO or Fauci, says this person. So what uh, Thompson comes up with uh, in The Atlantic is try something like DoorDash for vaccines. You know what? You call a number, or I guess you go on a site, and they come to your house. Now, that sounds a little crazy, but this current situation is not working because we're not going to get that much further, and we're not going to reach herd immunity, says the New York Times. Uh, with any new technology, the early adopters. I mean, who thought we'd all be sitting home, offering, you know, go, calling Uber Eats or DoorDash or, or, or Grubhub or any one of these things and saying, you know, Bring me my pizza, bring me my pasta, bring me my Chinese food. And lots of people do it, and restaurants had to do it to survive. So I don't know how feasible that is, but I think private companies, given the right financial incentives, would do it. Also, he says, make it suck more not to be vaccinated. So there are places like Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer says, uh, we will reopen more of the state when we make more progress in shots. But it seems to me that's not fair because you're you're... The people who have gotten vaccinated or are trying to get vaccinated are suffering, and the holdouts are affecting the policy for the whole state. Another way to do it is people want to go to sports events or go to concerts or travel, you know, get a passport to travel uh, around the world. If they can't prove they've been vaccinated, they don't get to do that service. And that might be an incentive. They're like, yo, you want, I want to go to the Yankees game or the Dodgers game, or I want to go to this concert. Uh, but, you know, part of the problem here also is other countries. I mean, what's happening in India now is just unspeakable. How many are dying, are setting world records everywhere, just a desperate situation. But as we learn with China, you know, if it's ravaging through India, it's eventually going to spread to other countries. I know President Biden saying no travel from India right now. But, you know, those things, what, what do you do with somebody who went to India, from India to somewhere else to somewhere else and then came to the United States? Uh, and it's not just India, obviously. So, you know, we are one global community when it comes to something like the virus, as the entire world has learned to its dismay. So I'm kind of bummed about this. I think there's still things we can try to do. Uh, but clearly, a lot of people are dug in. And the Biden to say that they're shocked by this, it, it was pretty predictable. You, you look at those polls, you look at the interviews for months now. A lot of people are saying they didn't want to do it or they were hesitant to do it. A lot of people are just saying, I'll do it when I get around to it. Okay? They're not saying absolutely positively not. So why not make it easier for them to get around to it? All right, a few other things I want to touch on here. Uh, Mitt Romney at a Republican convention um, in Utah this week was booed, was really booed. And Romney, you know, took it in stride. He said, aren't you embarrassed? I'm a man who says what he means. And you know, I was not a fan of our last president's character issues. And they were trying to shout him down. Accusations that he was a traitor or a communist flew from the crowd. And finally, he says, you can boo all you like. I've been a Republican all of my life. My dad was the governor of Michigan, and I was the Republican nominee for president in 2012. What he's saying is, folks, I come from a Republican family. He was also the Republican governor, as you recall, of Massachusetts, um, and before becoming 
the GOP nominee back in 12, and before, again, becoming a senator from Utah, she's representing different states, and he's saying, look, I've been a Republican, I'm still a Republican, I, yes, I voted to convict Donald Trump on impeachment, you don't have to like that, and he narrowly beat the motion in this state convention to censure him. It was close. Uh, so that shows you, it's kind of a emblematic of what Liz Cheney is going through in Wyoming. Any prominent Republican, or not so prominent Republican, that uh, didn't buy into the, the election was rigged, or we should overturn the election, or we shouldn't accept the results from the states that Biden won, is getting it from the pro-Trump faction, which is often the majority in their state Republican parties. And how that plays out is anybody's guess. Uh, let's see now. Politico has a piece about who is uh, taking jobs in the Biden administration. Turns out that Joe Biden, who went to the University of Delaware and Syracuse Law School, and has bragged about going to a state school, well, guess what? He has hired a whole lot of Ivy Leaguers, nearly twice as many as in the original lineup in the Trump White House. 41% of a senior or mid-level Biden White House staffers, this is 82 out of 201 people, have Ivy League degrees. By contrast, 21% of comparable White House staff had gone to Ivy League schools under Trump at the beginning. Trump, of course, himself had gone to the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. Um, So, the most popular Ivy League institutions, I know you were dying to know this, uh, for both the Biden and Trump White House is Harvard. Okay, you can resume regular breathing. 35 Biden aides, 17% of the total staff, have degrees from Harvard, including Ron Klain, the chief of staff, um, including lots of other people. And uh, if you go back to Trump, Jared Kushner, Steve Bannon. Number two, you could probably guess it, Yale. 29 graduates of the White House, including the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, National Economic Council Director Brian Dees, National Security Chief of Staff Johannes Abraham. Only 10 aides in the first year of Trump's White House had degrees from Yale. All right. Uh, this is because you need to know this. According to a story in the New York Post, a Harry Potter-themed event at a New Zealand book festival has been canceled, there's that word again, over author J.K. Rowling's controversial comments on gender. Organizers of this book town, Karukatea, sure I mangled that, eliminated a quiz about Harry Potter after Rowling tweeted a series of opinions that some called transphobic. This is one of the best-selling authors of all time, the British author, J.K., uh, was met with a pretty rough backlash by many in the LGBTQ community, some stars of the Harry Potter films. She was panned for using the term people who menstruate instead of women, and also tweeting, if sex isn't real, there's no same-sex attraction. If sex isn't real... The lived reality of women globally is erased. So those are controversial opinions, but does it deserve to be canceled over it? Why do this in New Zealand? Organizers said they consulted with literary experts and LGBTQ community members before shelving the segment. So that's gotten picked up more on the whole major um, cancel culture thing, which seems like it just never ends. I mean, one of the things I talked about on Media Buzz yesterday was, uh, well, you, you hear this on the podcast. The podcast is sort of like the first draft of history, or often the first draft of Media Buzz as we go through all what's in the news, and I decide what I think about it, decide what to say on the air. So, more than 200 Simon & Schuster staffers saying that Mike Pence's book shouldn't be uh, published by SNS, which is also published in Kellyanne's book, by the way. 
and that nobody who had any association with Donald Trump, who was with him in an elevator, who worked in the Trump administration, should have their book canceled by Simon & Schuster, which ultimately means only books of a certain political persuasion could be published by Simon & Schuster. To his credit, Jonathan Karp, the CEO of Simon & Schuster, who edited one of my books like a zillion years ago, put out a statement saying, we come to work to publish, not cancel. Not that they're completely immune from this. They canceled Senator Josh Hawley's book. Uh, after his for his role in the trying to overturn the election, or that is not certify the electoral college results. All right, before we go, you got to know this. This is going to be big news everywhere. Uh, major news at the White House. Major Biden. This is one of the two German separates has made his return to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue after those two biting incidents. But there's a new problem in Major's life. There's going to be a cat. Joe and Jill Biden are getting a cat to go with their two dogs. Jill Biden says, tells NBC he's back. Speaking of Major, uh, we were going to bring him in to see you. Uh, as the NBC reporter, that might not be a prudent idea. The cha- uh, first lady saying that the training works. Major is now a sweet, lovable dog. And uh, the cat is waiting in the wings. We don't know what kind of cat. We don't know what the cat's name is going to be. Bill Clinton had a cat named Socks. And he had Buddy, the dog, and then I think he later had another dog. And they got along fine. But Major, you know, Major has attitude. So how much coverage, here's my bet. When they unveil the cat and the cat's name and all of that, and I'm all for presidential pets, that will get more coverage than the corrections by NBC, Washington Post, and New York Times over what turned out to be the false accusation against Rudy Giuliani. Uh, I'm not a betting guy. I don't go buy lottery tickets, but just... You know, in a media sense, I'd be willing to wager there'll be an imbalance between the cat story and this other story that doesn't fit the narrative. All right. Again, hope you had a good weekend, folks. The Media Buzz segments are online. You can see it on my Twitter or Facebook page or the show page. I hope you will subscribe. Apple, iTunes, Google Podcasts, a lot of good places. We'll see you tomorrow with more Buzz News. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.